Good afternoon. Welcome to the Long Live the First Amendment and Free Speech Podcast. Free Press Media Press Inc. sponsors this podcast. I'm Andrew Bouchard. Today I read the case Coggin v. State, 123SW3D82, Texas Court of Appeals, 3rd District, 2003. Friends, in this case, we're going to talk about something that could happen to any of us. It probably has. So what may that be? Ponder that. Let the gears in your head turn. These disorderly conduct cases seem to overlap with obscenity cases. Therefore, I am including the ones that overlap on this podcast. There are some elements of disorderly conduct that would not apply to this podcast. But cases like this do apply. So what happened here, friends? What happened here? Let's read from the opinion. It says, quote, On October 25th, 2001, appellant was driving in the left lane south on Colorado Street, U.S. Highway 183 in Lockhart. Appellant's vehicle was a white car with spotlights on, this, on the side and handcuffs hanging from the rearview mirror. Appellant came upon another vehicle in the left lane that was traveling more slowly. There is nothing in the record to show that the other persons or automobiles were present. Appellant proceeded to tailgate the car, flash his headlights, and motion for the car to move into the right lane so he could pass. The other vehicle was driven by 22-year-old John Pastrano, a jailer with the Caldwell County Jail. His wife, Robin, was a passenger. Pastrano, thinking that he was being pulled over by an unmarked police car, moved into the right lane. As appellant passed Pastrano's car, he allegedly gestured with his raised middle finger or shot the bird at Pastrano and his wife. End quote. Have any of you ever done that? Have any of you ever flipped the bird while driving? Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever been on the receiving end? I bet at least one of those possibilities has happened at least one time in your life. So this type of case brings everything home. It could be any of us involved in a situation like this. It goes to show that ordinary life circumstances may call us to be an advocate for the First Amendment. John Pastrano, 22 years old, he's already married. Some would say that's too young to get married. And it's not like he's getting married. He already was married. didn't say how long he was married. Probably they deemed that immaterial. So this guy is 22. Some people think age makes a difference. So maybe a 22-year-old doesn't have much credence. Let's continue reading from this. It says, quote, Cohen issued appellant a citation for Class C misdemeanor of disorderly conduct gesture. Appellant pled not guilty and initially waived a jury trial in counsel. He later retained counsel, and in a one-day jury trial on October 21, 2002, was found guilty of the offense of disorderly conduct and fined $250. Like I always like to mention to my dear audience, we got to adjust that for inflation. So let us plug that into the Bureau of Labor Statistics CPI inflation calculator to see what that would be today. This was back in October 25, 2001. So we're going to go to October 2001, 
and we're going to do $250 and see what that amounts to today's dollars. That would be approximately $365.67. Do you think that's too much for shooting the bird? Do you think that is an appropriate fine? Fortunately, in Texas, the Class C misdemeanor is not too serious. Class A is the most serious. How did the justices view this? They say, quote, that this conviction rests upon the unseemly gesture alone is clear from the charging instrument. Thus, appellant was not accused of threatening or otherwise endangering others on the road or reckless driving or tailgating, nor does the state contend that the conduct is obscene. Appellant was charged solely with disorderly conduct by gesture of extending his middle finger, end quote. You see the word obscene in there. What do you think about that? It's, good. it's a good thing this guy didn't do anything else because we can focus on this main issue. Some disorderly conduct cases involve fighting and obscene language. So in those cases, it's convoluted what is right and what is wrong and how that relates to our purposes. Here, we're all centered and concentrating and focusing on the most germane thing. There were a few grounds of error that this appellant brought forth. He argues that this law Section 4201A2, which barred his gesture, is a violation of freedom of speech and the First Amendment. And he says that they are, quote, vague and overbroad. This is what the justices had to say about that. They say, quote, Accordingly, we hold that the conduct prescribed under Section 42. 01A2 falls within the fighting words exception, does not violate rights of free speech and expression protected by the First and Fourteenth Amendments to the United States Constitution. End quote. So they're amounting this to fighting words, as you can see. Good try, though. We love when people defend the First Amendment. They don't think it's vague. They go in a long discussion about why it's not vague. They say, quote, a statute is not unconstitutionally vague merely because it fails to define words or phrases, end quote. He was arguing that it wasn't defining the stuff right. But unfortunately, that didn't hold true. I see their point. It's a valid argument. However, we are here to advance the First Amendment, so we don't like when they hold it back. They look into dictionary definitions of these words using the statute and they say it's something you can understand. And they say it's only about fighting words so it's not overbroad. He also argues that this section is unconstitutional for another reason. Let's read from the record. It says, quote, 
In his third point of error, appellant contends that section 4201A2 is unconstitutional as applied to him because there was no evidence of any immediate danger or threat from the people who witnessed his gesture. End quote. I have experience with disorderly conduct laws. In a prior podcast, we discussed my case with disorderly conduct. And one of the things they deem disorderly conduct is posing imminent threat of harm to others. Like they said, imminent, immediate danger or harm. And here they discuss whether that's the case as what this appellant did. In my case, the judge ruled I wasn't causing any immediate harm by what I was doing, picketing. Unfortunately, they didn't get too much into this because they say he didn't properly raise it the first time around during the trial. They also deal with what they call, quote, sufficiency of the evidence, end quote. They point out in the statute there are several things that have to take place for it to be a violation. So let's read what they said. It says, quote, from a rational trier of fact to have found appellant guilty of the offense of disorderly conduct by gesture, the state must have adduced proof to establish beyond a reasonable doubt that A, appellant, B, intentionally and knowingly, C, made an offensive gesture, D, in public, in a public place, E, that tends to incite immediate breach of peace, end quote. You wouldn't think a disorderly conduct trial would necessarily be this complicated. It would seem like such things would be reserved for murder trials, but they are. As a person who have had, has had and won a disorderly conduct trial, they can debate, they can have disputes about things. And this is what happened here. So it has to have all those five things in place. If they accidentally show the middle finger, then it wouldn't be a trial. A was appellant, so it would have to be proved it was him that did it. If someone just saw two people in the audience and they couldn't tell which hand, then that would be one thing. They'd have to show he made an offensive gesture. It would have to be in a public place. If you just did it in your home, it might be a different story. The main part of the section they focus on is E, that tends to incite an immediate breach of peace. They analyze the history of the middle finger and they say it goes back to the Romans and they say it's been going on for a long time and it's clear what it means. And they say also nobody debated whether that happened. So they conclude, yes, that part of the appellant making the gesture is without dispute. They want to determine whether this gesture in this circumstance would promote someone to react harshly in a fighting way. So they make the following notes. They say, quote, Language that is merely harsh and insulting does not generally rise to the level of fighting words. Derisive 
or annoying words only rise to such a level when they plainly tend to excite the addressee to a breach of peace. It is not enough that the words merely arouse anger or resentment. Anything short of the use of fighting words does not constitution does not constitute a violation of the statute. Here the records and circumstances of the case do not demonstrate that the appellant's gesture tends to incite an immediate breach of peace. Texas Penal Code Annotated 4201A2 End quote. They put forth some of the transcript of the trial where they cross-examined these, where they, where they questioned these witnesses about how the gesture made them feel. And both of them said something to the effect that they were upset, they didn't like it very much, they were mad, but it didn't cause them to do anything too severe. I doubt, although most people wouldn't like to have the middle finger shown at them, it probably wouldn't cause a lifelong scar in anybody. It wouldn't cause severe psychological damage alone. And they say the actions these people took after they were victims of the finger demonstrate that it wasn't that big of a deal and they weren't going to react in a violent way. As they say, quote, the fact that speech arouses some people to anger is simply not enough to amount to fighting words in the constitutional sense. End quote. And also, quote, we agree that the gesture repugnant, distasteful, and crass as it is could tend to incite an immediate breach of peace in a different context. End quote. Notice as different context, not this context. And they say, quote, that this gesture may be thrust upon unsuspecting or sensitive viewers falls short of the type of conduct in a public place that would incite those present to violence, end quote. So how do they conclude? Let's read from this. It says, quote, we therefore sustain appellant's fourth point of error that the evidence was legally insufficient to support the judgment of the conviction. In light of our disposition, we need, we need not address appellant's factual sufficiency challenge or his fifth point of error challenge in probable cause to charge him with a crime. We hold that the evidence was legally insufficient to establish that the appellant's gesture tends to incite immediate breach of peace. Because the evidence is legally insufficient to support appellant's guilt, we reverse the judgment of conviction and render a judgment of acquittal. End quote. There was a long dissent. One of the other judges thought he should have been convicted and his actions did amount to disorderly conduct. But he wasn't in the majority. Our side won, folks. Our side won. So what do you think about that? Do you think Robert Lee Coggin is worthy of First Amendment heaven? If he is, you need to be like him. We need to be like him. I need to be like him. So let us ask ourselves how we can keep fighting the good fight to end up in First Amendment heaven. May this case inspire you. Who knows? Someone might flip you the bird today or you might have a situation where you flip the bird and you might end up in this situation. You might become famous. You might become published in a court reporter like this. You might make history. So how will you advance the First Amendment, freedom of speech, and third parties today? Long live the First Amendment and free speech. Goodbye.